This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its original promise of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, September 11, 2022. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. In today's podcast, we'll talk with Tom Bastian, Deputy Director for Communications at the ACLU of Missouri, regarding voting rights. It's a follow-up to an interview we aired a few weeks ago when we talked with the Missouri Secretary of State, John Ashcroft, and the local director of the League of Women Voters, Joan Hubbard, regarding changes in our voting laws and how they affect all of us. But first, I found a great resource online from the League of Women Voters. It's called Vote411.org. Check it out. They have a wealth of nonpartisan information about the candidates and issues you'll see on your ballot this November. Again, that address is vote411.org. And here's a fact you might want to consider. Money injects corruption into our government. If you believe that's true and you're as concerned about it as I am, then join Move to Amend. Move to Amend is an organization dedicated to passing a constitutional amendment to end corporate rule and the corrupting influence of big money in elections. Join Move to Amend and help create a movement toward a true democracy that serves all the people, not just the rich ones. You can find Move to Amend online at movetoamend.org. Joining us now is Tom Bastian, Deputy Director for Communications at the Missouri ACLU. We're going to talk about the recent changes in Missouri's law as it pertains to voting rights. Like many other states, Missouri has overhauled its voting laws and instituted new policies. Many of these policies actually allow more voter access, but overall, my personal observation is that voter access has narrowed substantially. For example, to cast a normal ballot, a government-issued ID with a photograph of the voter is required. And this applies to both in-person voting as well as when voting before Election Day as an absentee voter. Now, a provisional ballot may still be used on Election Day if a voter does not have a government-issued ID with a photograph, and a signature comparison will be done, but it's still a provisional ballot. The new law also forces voters to declare a party well in advance of a primary election, as opposed to declaring it at the polling place. It also prevents anyone from collecting payment for soliciting voter registration applications, and anyone soliciting more than 10 voter registration applications must register with the Secretary of State's office. The ACLU is getting involved in challenging aspects of the recent changes in the voting laws, And as Deputy Director for Communications at the Missouri ACLU, Tom Bastian is here to help us understand what's going on. So, Tom, thank you for joining us at Democracy in the Move, and welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Good. So let's get right into it. Uh, At a high level, can you discuss the new law known as HB 1878, particularly as it affects things like voter access, uh, elimination of drop boxes, ID requirements, voter registration, party registration, etc.? I mean, basically the things that the ACLU is really concerned about with this new law. Sure, sure. And, you know, before I go into that, I think it's important um, to really highlight that uh, the the voter registration deadline is October 12th. And every listener should make sure they're registered, make sure that they have the proper 
uh, unexpired voting IDs, which we'll go over, but that's a driver license, a non-driver license, um, a passport or a military ID. Make sure you have one of those IDs to ensure that you can cast a regular ballot um, in the November uh, election. So, and, and it also needs to be non-expired driver's license too, right? That you, you, it has that, to be a current driver's license. That's correct. It has to okay. be a Missouri state or federally issued non-expired driver li or license photo okay. identification. Okay. So HB 1878 began as a more restrictive ID bill, but turned into an omnibus voter restriction bill in the last days of session. It includes a strict voter ID uh, which is the restriction of acceptable voter identification. Mm -hmm. um, it also includes voter registration restrictions and the criminalization of efforts, um, absentee restrictions and criminalization. It allows the Secretary of State to purge voter rolls. It allows for private audits. It eliminates presidential preference primaries. It removes outside funds for election authorities. It eliminates electronic voting machines. Um, and it does add a two-week no-excuse in-person absentee voting. But as you mentioned, you'll have to present uh, the same required non-expired identification uh, to be able to cast that bell ballot. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, it doesn't expand the date. So it's still Monday through Friday, normal working hours. Right. It doesn't include weekends or uh, beyond the eight to five uh, working hours, which we know impacts uh, hourly wage workers or people that work at night. Um, it, it just, it's still inaccessible to those folks. Yeah. You know, it, in the end, I think this, this bill is bad for our democracy. It, it curtails who can take part in our elections by enacting a host of restrictions that's going to largely impact communities of color, people with disabilities, people with limited income, and Missourians living in uh, the rural parts of the state. Um, in the primary elections in August, we had a 24% turnout. And this bill will do nothing to increase voter participation, but will most likely further decrease turnout. So let's talk about the, the, the uh, you wanted to hit this uh, strict voter ID regulation. Is that, is that something that the ACLU is uh, concerned with at this point? Are they, are they pursuing this in any way? Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, so we are a part of uh, three lawsuits. Um, two of them were filed. Two of them are against 1878. One was filed uh, a little bit earlier. Um, but all, all of these are to uh, protect uh, Missourians access to the ballots. And if you don't mind, I can briefly go through each of these lawsuits. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> OK, great. So um, so at the ACLU Missouri, we, we firmly believe in uh, people's voting rights and the access to the ballot. That's why we're, we're challenging uh, this new law in two different lawsuits. And we're also challenging an existing law that's been on the books. Um, in, in the first lawsuit, uh, the, the existing law, it's a VRA challenge that we filed in June. Um, and we're, we're challenging existing provisions that disenfranchise voters, uh, particularly with English, uh, limited English proficiency or uh, voters with disabilities who require assistance in casting a ballot. Um, Okay, just real quickly here, yeah. VR, VRA is voting, that's the, refers to the Voting Rights Act, which was, I believe, 
from 1964 or 1965, one of those two years? I believe 1965. Okay. Um, yes, the Voting Rights Act. Uh, so the Voting Rights Act, uh, among many things, uh, it, it guaranteed that any voter who requires assistance may bring a person of their choice to uh, help them cast their ballot. Mm -hmm. um, how, however, Missouri uh, election law has uh, a law on the books that impedes the right um, of, of that, of people having uh, an assister help them cast a ballot by mm -hmm. limiting the number of people you can assist to only one person. Hmm. So it, it allows family members you know, a family member can help, like a son could help uh, a father and mother or their fathers or mothers to to vote, but couldn't help uh, some someone else in addition to that. So, you know, as of 2020, there are nearly 850,000 people with disabilities and 125,000 Latino or Latinx voters who are eligible to vote in Missouri. And there's not enough assisters to cover that amount. There, there's no way that organizations can hire or be be available to assist. So there's a huge population that uh, has not had the appropriate access to the ballot that that they should. That's guaranteed by the VRA. That's interesting because I mean, what what was the grievance in that situation? Were, were there issues coming up with a person assisting more than one other person? Well, that's what the law says, that you can only help one person. Um, so I think the the effects of the law had more of a chilling effect on organizations that knew that law existed. So therefore, we're prevented from actually trying to uh, ramp up and assist people. Hmm, okay. Um, so th this was a lawsuit that we brought on uh, in partnership with the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund and Missouri Protection and Advocacy Services and uh, the Missouri Voter Protection Coalition. Okay. Now you so, have, you have, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say you have two more lawsuits from uh, stemming from 1878, but if you're not done with this one yet, uh, keep going. Nope, nope. So uh, jumping into 1878. So we have two lawsuits uh, filed against 1878. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about the uh, the voter identification restrictions uh, after we get through this first one. Sure. But the, uh, th this first lawsuit, so it, it targets new restrictions and the criminalization of activities relating to voter registration and absentee ballot solicitation. Um, so you know, in, in this, we, we brought a lawsuit with uh, the Missouri Voter Protection Coalition and the Campaign Legal Center, and we represent the uh, League of Women Voters of Missouri and the Missouri State Conference of the NAACP. Okay. So what this portion does, um, it prohibits people from being compensated by private organizations to register voters. It only allows people to be paid by the government to do that. Hmm. Uh, also, there, there's no clear definition of what compensation means. Um, so, you know, if you look at the law, you could think that reimbursing someone for parking, um, providing a snack or a pizza to volunteers, um, or, or paying them in cash, all of those could potentially be illegal under this. 
Wow. And it adds a, a criminal uh, 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 component to it mm-hmm. um, to where you'll, you'll be guilty of a uh, class three election misdemeanor, um, which that can result in uh, your, your removal of your right to vote in Missouri for your, the rest of your life. Wow. That's pretty restrictive. Yeah. So I mean, if you like yeah. give a bottle of water to somebody that's that's out there in the hot sun, just you know soliciting people to register, make sure they're registered to vote. Um, okay. um, but you know, you you jump into uh, the next portion that that's uh, this is all contained in the first lawsuit. But uh, a person who registers more than ten voters, they have to be registered with the Secretary of State's office. They have to be 18 and they have to be a registered voter in the state of Missouri in order to register more than 10 people in Missouri. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, it's just added restrictions, which things like that, those two um, specifically hit on organizations like the League of Women's Voter, or the League of Women Voters and the NAACP. That's their core mission is to, to register voters. And now, their volunteers could be at risk. So, um, wow. you know, the, the, the other part of the uh, registration ban is uh, it includes a ban on absentee ballot solicitation. So if, if you have a friend that's going out of town on election day, you could get in trouble for telling them that, uh, hey, remember to vote absentee uh, when, when you, before you go out of town. Really? I mean, just reminding them that, uh, they can go to the election office and vote absentee beforehand. That's, that would be illegal. Uh, according to this law. Wow. Wow. So, um, and you know, we, we at the ACLU, we see that as a huge freedom of speech issue. Yeah. And again, I have to return to the question, what, what problem were they trying to solve here? I mean, okay, the obvious answer is there, it's voter restriction, but was this particular thing an issue before? Like, were, were, did you have like rogue people out there getting paid a million dollars to register, you know, voters or something like that? I mean, it was it, that, that wasn't even a problem before though, was it? No. And I mean, this has, you know, th- these activities have been a part of, uh, I'd say American tradition for several years, um, different organizations exercising their their right to political speech and getting others involved in the political process. Um, so it's it's really just a restrictive effort to, I, I guess, to hamper these activities. Yeah, but it, at some point, I mean, I'm just I'm going to make some allegations here without any evidence. So forgive me for that, but. It it almost sounds to me like somebody is trying to suppress the vote from certain types of people, certain classes of people with this. Because oh, well, your, your average your average person from the suburb probably doesn't have to deal with all these issues like, you know, getting to the polling place or getting to the uh, election office to vote uh, absentee beforehand. Um, they're probably already registered. So you're really targeting people. Uh, that are, you know, that don't have the car, they don't have the transportation, or maybe they work different hours or something like that. And that's maybe the the thought process is that those people will vote a certain way, um, you know, 
vote perhaps Democrat or something like that, not voting Republican in a sense. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't want you to stick your neck out by making a sort of sort of projections yeah. like that, but it sounds to me like that is the overall motive that's not being talked about out there. Yeah, I, I think if you go through throughout history, um, anytime there's been voter suppression efforts, it is it's politically motivated, but also uh, always racially motivated um, mm-hmm. in the past. And, you know, I think these highlight uh, they're targeting specific people uh, in particular people of, uh, from communities of color, mm-hmm. I think people with disabilities, um, but also this is going to impact people, uh, from with limited income, people in rural Missouri who don't have, uh, access to, uh, transportation, mm-hmm. uh, cause they're, they're not going to be able to, to, to drive somewhere to register to vote and no longer is an organization going to be able to meet them where they are. Yeah. Um, you know, that's same in urban and uh, rural yeah. uh, areas. And plus um, having having this extra burden, if you need assistance, if somebody assists that person in voting, then that then that's it. That person cannot assist anyone anymore ever uh, for that particular election cycle, I assume. So that adds to the transportation burden too then, right? Because if you have more than like, let's say you have a busload of, of people who are disabled that need transportation to the voting place and need help in the voting place, you have to have another bus full of people that they can one-on-one uh, help the people. Yeah. Well, that's, so that, that we want to make sure to keep those two separated because mm-hmm. that's the first lawsuit is uh, specifically for um, like, if I, I can uh, assist, you going into like the to cast your ballot um you know i could be in there with you to help you do that um so that's a little bit different but yeah i mean the the reaches of the registration absentee uh restrictions i mean that's it's vast yeah Um, wow yeah i realize i'm kind of jumping around here a bit um so those are the those are the summaries of the three lawsuits that the aclu is bringing um what do you think the ACLU has any hope of having an effect on the law in time for this coming November's election? So um, in in the uh, freedom of speech issue, the registration absentee, uh, we have uh, in, in our filing, we we ask for a preliminary injunction. Um, we hope that that will be granted before the November election. Uh, actually, we hope that'll be granted before the registration deadline, voter registration deadline. Mm-hmm. But you know that depends on a judge, and so that's at this point out of our hands. So, yeah. I, and on the voter identification restriction, um, we we've requested an expedited trial, um, and we hope that that will happen before the November election. Um, but again, that that depends on a date getting set and it happening and, right. and the, the ruling. Um, so with that being said, like that's why it's so important for people, make sure you're registered to vote by October 12th and make sure you get the proper identification, make sure they're not expired. Um, 
So you have everything you need to cast a ballot, a regular ballot, um, when that time comes. Right. As opposed um, to a, a um, pro provisional ballot. Correct. And do you, um, I should go over the uh, ID portion. Yes, yes, please. Okay. Um, so in in the last portion um, of HB 1878 that we're looking at right now, we have, uh, which is uh, everyone's probably much more familiar with, is the uh, new voter ID restrictions that have been placed. So Missouri, oh, we brought that law to, uh, or we brought the lawsuit with the uh, Missouri Voter Protection Coalition. And uh, that is on behalf of the Missouri League of Women Voters and the Missouri State Conference of the NAACP and two individual uh, voters that will be impacted by that. Um, so Missouri already had, or had, yeah, Missouri already had a voter ID law in effect. It, it provided a secondary alternative IDs that were accepted. Um, the, these included uh, a student ID, expired driver or non-driver license, uh, non-photo state issued IDs, voter registration cards, and bank statements and utility bills. So what this new ID restriction did was remove all of those secondary uh, identifications. Mm -hmm. Now it's only an unexpired state issued or federally issued photo ID, which would be a non-expired driver license, non-expired non-driver license, non-expired passport, and non-expired uh, military ID. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't have those, then you can cast a provisional ballot, but you, so you can cast a provisional ballot and return to your polling place with the proper non-expired ID to make that provisional ballot count, or you must rely on a signature match on your provisional ballot that matches with the signature that they have on record for your voter registration. Mm -hmm. I, my, my signature has changed pretty frequently over the years. Yeah. Um, not to mention if you have an injury, a medical issue, or numerous other things that could impact the ability to sign how you did five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a way to follow up, uh, just out of curiosity, let's say you have to rely on your signature. Is there a way to follow up to make sure that your vote did count? Yeah, I believe there is a way you can follow up, but I, it's not till days later. So if you did follow up and it didn't count, I don't think there's anything you can do to fix that. Yeah. Wow. So while, uh, you know, you while you were registered to vote and you voted, you had to vote a provisional ballot and the ballot didn't count. So I think the, uh, some of the, uh, so, some of the information that's being put out there, it needs to be a little more uh, precise and accurate. Mm -hmm. Like what? I mean, is there misleading information out there? Yeah. I, I think the, uh, if you're registered to vote, you can vote. 
is a little misleading because it needs to be expanded upon. It needs to be, if you're registered to vote, you can vote. You'll just vote provisional and it may or may not be counted. Yeah. So that's why it's important for people to make sure they're registered to vote, but also make sure they have those IDs and not to rely on the lawsuits uh, at this point, because litigation does take time. Yeah. And, and getting a voter ID is a problem in itself, right? Because the DMV has their office hours and you either make it or you don't. They don't have, uh, as far as I know, when, when we talked to uh, Joan Hubbard at the League of Women Voters, as far as we know, anyways, there was no effort on the part of the DMV to expand their hours or expand their locations. No, I've not heard of any efforts to expand that. And I'm sure we all have stories of dealing with the bureaucracy at the uh, licensing office or DMV. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like in in my stories of, you know, having to get a another form of ID or another piece of paperwork is, is it, you know, it's it's a hassle for me. For some people, it's not possible. Yeah. Um, if if someone is disabled and doesn't isn't able to drive drive a vehicle or they have a disability that prevents them from driving a vehicle all of a sudden it becomes a huge burden for them to return to the uh DMV not to mention even getting there in the first place yeah for the sole purpose of gaining an ID so they can vote yeah um so this just the Missouri Constitution provides the fundamental right to vote. This clearly is a violation of that by setting up these additional obstacles and barriers. I mean, it's it's really disappointing to see time and time again, uh, Missouri legislators ignore the Constitution and attempt to pass these restrictive voting laws. You know, especially when you hear that we only had 24% of people turn out in the last election, um, we, we should be doing way, finding ways to encourage people to go to the polls, to get to the polls and exercise their uh, right to vote. We well, can do it like Australia does. It's a considered a civic duty and uh, it's like jury duty. Uh, you have to vote and they get uh, 95 plus percent people voting every single time. So it's um, it's it's compelling. You know, it, it, they compel you to vote when you're in Australia, but you know, that's on the other side of the world from us. You, you talked earlier about, uh, about the courts and, and if they will grant you this preliminary injunction. And that got me thinking about the courts the, themselves. And, and we've seen recent Supreme Court decisions, uh, Shelby County versus Holder back in 2013, um, or Renovich versus the DNC in 2021. And these, these are basically just, just on background, these decisions have tended to undermine the attributes of the Voting Rights Act. In your view, have the courts, not just the Supreme Court, but have courts in general become more political over the past decade and, and more willing to go along with, with voter restrictions? So the Voting Rights Act had, had been reauthorized under multiple Congresses and presidents, both parties, you know, for decades. I think everyone understood that the voter restrictions of the past um, always were employed to dilute 
uh, minority groups and their their votes. Mm-hmm. Um, the the Voting Rights Act it allowed underrepresented groups to elect officials who, uh, who who are responsive to their needs. There's been a fringe view that Congress should not have the role of stopping states from preventing minority voters from participating equally in our election. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, in in recent years, uh, that out of the mainstream view has been embraced by the Supreme Court. And we're, we're seeing those effects now. And is it is it just our trend toward this extremist conservative perspective, you think, that's driving this? Because there, there's a lot of, obviously, uh, political forces at play here. And uh, over the last several years, a lot of judges have been, obviously, you know, appointed by uh, people in in the uh, ex- from the extremist perspective, um, it's just I, I know I guess it's it's kind of an open question. I mean, it seems like the the courts have become more political, and I'm just trying to figure out you know what's what's driving this trend. Are we really backsliding on civil rights? I definitely hesitate to say like backsliding because that would imply that we were at a really good place. When I know if if I, I speak to a person of color, that they would, they would, they know different. They, they experience, uh, they have a lot different experiences than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, that would definitely say that we were not at a good place to begin with. I think, I think it's just, it's, it's something that everyone is really starting to see now when we should have been listening this whole time. Um, yeah. So I, I think, you know, that's just goes back to we can do something about it. We can vote. Yeah. Let's go back to Congress again, because you, you had mentioned this, uh, the way the, the U.S. Congress, we talked all, already about the Missouri Congress, but um, there is this thing called Article One, Section 4. Um, I'll have to tell everybody I'm not a lawyer, but I can read the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And there is this thing called Article One, Section 4 which seems to indicate that the U.S. Congress can override state legislatures insofar as, quote, the time, places, and manner of holding elections, the key word there being manner of holding elections. Do you suppose, I know there's been movement within Congress, and I'm just kind of asking you to guess at this point, not as a representative of ACLU, but as Tom Bastian, do you suppose Congress will at some point try to derail any sort of this uh, unraveling of voting rights out there? Well, I think it's uh, it's incumbent on Congress to do something. I would say enact the federal voting rights protections and strengthen those. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we we we've seen you know recently the the Supreme Court has become hostile to past congressional efforts to rein in states' abilities to enact discriminatory or to. Yeah, the, their ability to rein in uh, discriminatory voting rules. Um, it's had to continue to recognize that the Constitution explicitly give Congress the role uh, in the administration of elections. Mm-hmm. So while striking down um, provisions of the federal voting law, the Supreme Court has telegraphed what it saw wrong with them and how they can be enacted uh, in a constitutional way. So again, it's up to Congress to uh, to to make these protections. 
It's a matter of will, though, isn't it? Because I think, you know, it, it, I sort of share this hesitation that if they jump in and start overriding uh, the time, places, and manner of holding elections, you know, that the, the state that's really reserved for the states, it's it's a bit of a nuclear option and uh, yeah, a nuclear option in a sense because it could just blow up the whole thing, right? It could really there would be all kinds of cries about okay, here comes the federal government coming in to take over uh, and dictate to the states what they can and cannot do. So I understand the hesitation about that, but on the other hand, you know, there's this other extreme where the states are. Uh, at least in my opinion, anyways, they're, they are backsliding in the sense that we're going back to, you know, poll tax literacy tests and things like that that came out of the out of the, the uh, late 1800s and, and prevailed uh, through un, until the uh, until the civil rights movements of the 1950s and 60s. So um, that's more of an opinion. That's really not a question. <laughs> I was just wondering if you could share some of your opinions on ideas to mitigate the effects of of polarization on our voting rights. We've seen, for example, Alaska Institute ranked choice voting plus uh, top four open primaries. And I'm, I'm seeing some grumblings now that the state of Nevada wants to be the second state to do that. From your perspective, does that look like a good development that could help voting rights or would it not have any effect on voting rights, do you think? Yeah, I, I think it, it definitely could help voting rights. Um, you know, the traditional winner-takes-all voting methods, it, it allows majorities to engage in racially polarized and uh, votes and prevents minorities from electing officials who are responsive to their concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, alternative voting methods, uh, such as ranked choice, um, it takes control of elections, takes it away from the political bosses, and away from racially polarized voting blocks um, and returns it to the community as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for, for example, in uh, Ferguson Florissant School Board, the school district was 85% black. Um, however, the school uh, only had one black representative out of seven on the school board. Wow. Uh, yeah. You know, and we, we saw that and we were able to sue, the ACLU saw it and was able to sue under the Voting Rights Act to show past institutional racism and current racially polarized voting. Um, the judge in that case uh, agreed and they instituted an alternative voting method. And, you know, since, since they instituted that, the uh, school boards made up of six African-Americans and the board, the entire board, has been much more responsive to the black community. Wow, that's a good development there. So uh, people listening to this podcast are going to wonder what they can do to help support the ACLU or, or in general to help uh, uh, make voting rights uh, better. You know, uh, but what can they do? Sure. You know, as, as I said at the top of the show uh, and frequently throughout, the most important thing everyone can do is register to vote. Make sure you have that identification. While the ACLU and other organizations are challenging uh, these restrictive laws, um, it's important to be ready and make sure you have everything you need to ensure your your vote counts. Um, On top of that, I would say get involved. Get involved with the NAACP, get involved with the League of Women Voters, Uh, get involved with uh, the ACLU, other organizations that are out there. 
Um, in particular with the ACLU, you can follow us on uh, our social media accounts, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can sign up for uh, news updates on our website. Um, we're we're going to try to keep you involved and uh, try to share those ways, you know, as they continue to come up, um, how you can help out and uh, get involved in your community. Okay, good. We've been talking with Tom Bastian, Deputy Director for Communications at the Missouri ACLU. Tom, thank you very much for joining us on Democracy on the Move today and helping us understand the new voter law in Missouri and what the ACLU is doing about it. All right. Thanks a lot, Dan. Really appreciate being here. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its original promise of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Rey Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast. I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead. We hope you tune in again next week.